Yeah, you may be seated. Hey, it is uh, so good to gather with you in uh, the house of the Lord to sing songs, to hear the word proclaimed, uh, to gather with the people of God. I uh, just want to add my welcome to Pastor John's. Uh, my name is Adam Rice. I'm one of the pastors here. And um, uh, you can open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. We're going to get there in just a moment. But as you're turning there, or, or I guess pulling out your phone and tapping there, I guess. I don't know. Uh, as you're doing that, though, just, I, I do want to echo what Pastor John said and just uh, talk about the, uh, the fall festival today. Uh, I, one, I've been so encouraged this week, uh, coming up this week and seeing people prepare and work, and um, even the, like all the people that help with the box maze, uh, and sort of helping Wendy think through everything. First, I know it's probably not good to celebrate um, before the event, but, but I do. I, I, I was just so encouraged this week uh, as everybody kind of jumped in, helped, um, and, and, and kind of played a part in that. And so I look forward to gathering with everybody tonight. Um, hey, the beauty of the type of preaching that we do here at Capshaw, um, it's called expositional preaching where we take the text. One, we believe the Bible is inerrant. We believe the Bible is infallible. We believe the Bible is sufficient and it is clear and, and so with that, we like to preach through books of the Bible. We go verse by verse, line by line, chapter by chapter, right? Um, and what's great about expositional preaching is that the pastor or the person preaching, whoever that may be at the time, they can't get blamed for the passage that we're in um, because the Lord gave it to us, okay? So don't shoot the messenger today. Uh, we are going to be in a very challenging text, um, one that uh, for many causes a bit of heart palpitation, uh, but rest easy. There's some good news in this passage for us this morning. So Romans chapter 8, picking up in verse 28, I'm going to read, I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll jump right in to this morning's sermon. Romans chapter 8. Picking up in verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Let's pray. Gracious God, our Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, Holy Spirit, we come before you now, recognizing our true and desperate need for you. We need you to open our eyes. We need you to Open our ears, open our minds and our hearts to receive the truths that you have in your word. God, may your word today stir, uh, stir us to love you, to treasure you, so that we can become more like you, more like Jesus. And we ask all that in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Do you ever notice that the best movies 
create tension that don't resolve themselves out until the very end. I mean, what movie would actually resolve the tension at the very beginning of a movie and you just kind of have to sit it out, you know? That would be not be a good story. Um, all the best book series create tensions that, that th- get resolved, maybe not in the first book, but through multiple books, right? Um, you know, this wasn't always the case uh, in television series or television shows. This definitely wasn't the case for the, for the TV shows that I, that I grew up watching. Um, you know, s- story uh, uh, shows like The Dukes of Hazard. I don't know if you know this. I have my brother, his, my, my brother, uh, he's a distinguished professor of theology at the New Orleans, New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary. He's a vice president there. Um, his name is Bo, but you know what? His name really isn't Bo. That's not his real name. His name is Arthur. And when he was a child, he loved Bo and Luke Duke. All right? This is no joke. He decided that he was going to, like, only answer to the name Bo, and it stuck. And now, go, go to the seminary's website. Go look. Bo Rice. It's not even his real name, but it's stuck so forever. Dukes of Hazard, though. You know, every, every week on the show, the Dukes of Hazard, there was a problem, and it was always resolved at the, by the end of the show, right? And the next week, it was a whole new set of problems, and then that it was always worked out, right? You know, the Andy Griffiths show. It's another show that I grew up on. You know, there was usually a bit of tension at the beginning of the show, and by the end, right, it always seemed to resolve itself. Uh, the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. You know, um, always tension. Maybe a little bit of uh, tension in the plot line, but it always seems to resolve itself out in, uh, by the end of the episode. You know, all shows that had storylines in each of those episodes resolved tension. Um, that was put into place at the beginning of the episode. However, if you think about this, most popular TV shows today uh, have long arcs, right? Long arcs of tension. The best movies and shows have long arcs, you know, uh, like the Avengers films. I don't know if you're any Marvel fans in here. You do, but think about Star Wars, right? Uh, Star Wars films. Always three there are. No more, no less. Right? This summer, the boys and I went to go watch the latest animated Spider-Man uh, movie. It ended on a cliffhanger. It pushes you off to the next film. You've got to wait for part two for there to be resolved tension. The, the latest Mission Impossible movie, I don't know if you saw that, it ended on a cliffhanger. You've got to wait. You've got to wait till the, next, um, till the next movie. Sometimes things aren't resolved until the very end. And, and you know what? That's how our life works as well. Oftentimes when we're in the thick of it, when we're suffering, and we're in our struggles, when we are in difficult situations, it's hard to understand how everything in our life is working for our good. We often grow weary and frustrated when we don't know how things will resolve themselves. And as many of you know, Romans chapter 8 
is regarded as one of the greatest chapters of, in the entire Bible. It's not just me saying that. A lot of people have said that. Sarah always jokes with me when I use that hyperbole. It's the greatest chapter. You know, this is the greatest chapter. And this morning, we will cover one of the most famous verses in Romans chapter 8. Arguably, one of the most famous verses in all the Bible. And that is Romans 8.28. You know, the likelihood that someone here has this verse written on a t-shirt or on a keychain or some decorative pillow or a coffee mug or a refrigerator magnet is probably pretty high, right? We love to quote this verse to each other when things, uh, when bad things happen, you know, hey, don't worry. All things work together for good for those who love God. But If we're honest, in the middle of a difficult season, of a difficult difficult situation, those words don't always feel encouraging, do they? Sometimes they can even be a bit frustrating. We don't see the complete arc. We don't see the end, how how, how it's going to work itself out. So how do we trust in the Lord and, and lean not on our own understanding how do we do that? How, how, do, we, how, how do we do that when uh, you, you don't understand what's go, what, you know, what you may be going through, when it makes no sense, when, when the experience that you are undergoing is so heavy, so dark, that you can't see the end from the beginning? You, you don't know uh, you, up from down. Uh, you can't breathe. It's so heavy. What do you do? When the phone rings and you pick it up, and it's the doctor, and they say, you have cancer. What do you do when you pick the phone up? The person on the other line says, she's gone. What do you do in those moments when everything has been taken out from under your feet? Well, the Apostle Paul is speaking to Christians precisely in that kind of circumstance. I know there are some in this room that are really struggling right now. Because I've had these conversations with you. Really struggling with where you are in life. The season you may be in. Maybe fill in the blank. You know. Some of you don't know what... What, how things are going to resolve. You can't see the light at the end of the tunnel. Some of you may be thinking, hey, things are going actually pretty well in my life right now. Well, hold on. Because tomorrow may be different. And at, at, at some point, it will most assuredly hit the fan. Now, Now, my friends, is the time to learn those lessons. Because as you probably are aware, when you're in the midst of your trials, when you're in the midst of your pain and you're struggling, it's it's difficult to learn new truths from the Word. You know? It's difficult to learn those. You must resort to truths you you have already learned. It may be truth that, uh, that you may experience in a new way, in in a new, uh, maybe a new level, Something you've heard long ago, but, but when you're in the thick of it, it is very difficult to hear new words of comfort. Now, now before those valleys are entered is the time to learn 
these truths. That's what we're going to do today. For Paul is speaking to those who are under the weight of it. And he's saying to them, this is how you trust. This is how you go on. And I want you to see three things in particular that Paul teaches in this passage. Beginning in verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. First of all, in, in the first part of verse 28, Paul gives an amazing declaration about the providence of God. He says that everything, even evil, everything, even evil works for your well-being and God's glory. In other words, Paul is telling you that absolutely everything in this life is ordered by God for your good. Now, don't misunderstand. Paul is not saying that all things are good in the believer's life. There are many things that are not good. Some of these things are things that, that, that have been done to us uh, or which we experience, which are no fault of our own. Other, others of these things are the things that we do to ourselves. They are not good. And Paul is not saying all things are good to believers. No, he's saying that God uses all things, even evil, even our pain, even our suffering. He uses all things according to... Uh, everything individually for the good of the believer. So Paul is not asserting that all things are good, but he is saying that God will use every circumstance of our lives for our good. But what good is it? The Christian, one of my favorite, my wife's favorite um, is Shane and Shane. We love the Christian artists, their, their, their band, Chain and Chain. Uh, and they've got a song called Though You Slay Me. And if you find it on YouTube, you can see this, this particular um, song that I'm referencing here. But, but Shane Bernard, his father passed away and, and, and sort of in the wake of dealing with the grief and the pain uh, of losing his father unexpectedly, he, he wrote this song. But in the middle of this song, you find it on YouTube, they splice together a, a short you know, little snippet from a, a sermon from John Piper. And I think it's, I love Piper's words here. And I just want to read this to you because I think it really fits with where we are this morning. Piper says, not only is all your affliction momentary, not only is it light, in comparison to eternity and the glory there. But every second is totally meaningful. Every millisecond of your misery in the path of obedience is producing a particular glory you will get because of that suffering. I don't care if it was cancer or criticism, slander or sickness. It wasn't meaningless. It's doing something. Of course, you can't always see it. You can't always see what it's doing. Don't look to what is seen when your mom dies, when your child dies, when you've got cancer at 40, when a car careens into the sidewalk and takes, out, takes her out, don't say that's meaningless. It's not. 
It's working for you an eternal weight of glory. Therefore, don't lose heart, but take these truths. And for us, Romans 8, and day by day, focus on them. Preach them to yourself every morning. Get alone with God and preach his word into your mind until your heart sings with confidence that you are known and cared for. And so what good, what good is our suffering producing? Point number one, the ultimate good and purpose for the Christian in this life and the one to come is to be conformed to Christ's image, to be made more like Jesus. All those who love God, and as we saw in the beginning of chapter 8, all those who are setting their mind on the Spirit, which is the fruit of the true believer. A true believer will be setting their mind on the Spirit. They will be loving God. For those he called, he, 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 he's drawn them in so that, that he could conform them into being more like Jesus. That's the ultimate goal. This is the reality for the Christian but as you know, it doesn't happen simultaneously. It happens through time, through a process, progressively. Over a long storyline arc, God is conforming us to be like Jesus. But, but how does God do it? How does he do it? Well, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> Let's look at the text. Romans 8, 29 and 30 features this sequence known as the golden chain of salvation, this unbreakable order in which our Creator saves His people. Although this chain does not specifically mention everything that God does in redeeming us, it does tell us that salvation is, uh, that, that the salvation is from start to finish a work from the Lord. It is not that God initiates uh, our salvation, and we kind of complete it on our own, out of our own obedience. He starts the work, and he finishes it without help from us. Verse 29, for those, he, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Paul emphasizes that God has foreloved us. Look at what he says. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Now, I want you to notice a few things about this. Though there are passages in the Bible, in the New Testament, such as in Peter, where the word foreknew means for God to foresee or to have foreknowledge of the future events, that's not what he means here. Okay? That's not what he means here. Here it means God is setting his love on his children before the foundations of the world. It means him choosing to love in a very specific way. Now, how do I know that? Well, notice that the passage does not say, as some like to say from time to time, that God foresaw that he would choose him, or he or she would choose him, therefore, he chose us. Now, of course, that makes no sense whatsoever. 
But even if it did, that can't be what Paul is saying because he does not say for what he foreknew. What does it say? Because he says, for whom he foreknew. In other words, this is a personal relationship that he's talking about. He's talking about a personal relationship of love when he uses the term foreknow. He, he's not talking about God seeing something that, that we do or some choice that, that he makes. He's talking about the Lord God of heaven and earth setting his love on you before you existed. For whom he foreknew those he predestined. See, this is foreknowledge of a relationship. Just as Genesis tells us that Adam knew Eve, he doesn't mean that he knew her name and address, right? It's a different kind of no. He had the deepest of marital relationships with her. I don't need to flesh that out. This is the family worship Sunday. Okay? And those, and just as the Old Testament speaks of God knowing his people, Amos 3.2 says, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. God is uniquely, has a unique knowledge of his creation. It's not that he didn't know other families, right? It's not that he didn't know other people. He created them. Of course he knew them. We know that to be true. It means that he is involved in a love relationship with them, with you. So as Paul is saying in verse 29, before the foundations of the world, God loved you. And because he loved you, secondly, he predestined you. That is, he chose you. He chose you and he has set out a purpose for your life before time. And that purpose is invincible. And here's Paul's words for you. You're, you're in the midst of it. You can't see the light at the end of the tunnel. You're struggling, and you don't see how things are going to work out, and you think, this time, I'm done for. I'm not going to be able to make it. This time, I don't see how I'm going to get through this. This time, I don't see how all these pieces are going to fit together. But Paul is saying, God set his love on you before the foundations of the world, and he predestined you, he chose you, he set his purpose on your life, and those purposes are not, to, they're not able to be overthrown. They are invincible. Now, don't get nervous about Paul's usage of the P word. Okay? So many people have gotten themselves into a tizzy about the Bible's usage of this word, predestination. I want to submit, it's because so many people misunderstand the meaning of election. They misunderstand the purpose that, that the Bible even gives us this word. What is God's purpose for giving us this word, this theological doctrine in the Bible? Is it so that we might fight over it? Or is it something else? Is it something to debate or is it not? Well, here's one thing you need to know. It's not a man-made doctrine, okay? It's given to us by God in his perfect and holy word, so we have to deal with it, okay? We can't just skip over it, as many often do. What is election? 
What is predestination? By the way, I'm using those terms interchangeably, okay? Here's the definition. Election is God's eternal choice of some persons unto everlasting life, not because of foreseen merit in them, but through his mere mercy in Christ, the consequence of his choice is that they are called justified and glorified. By the way, this is the abstract of principles written in 1858 by the founders of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and therefore, one of the very first faith statements of the Southern Baptist Convention. You want to know your Baptist heritage, you card-carrying Baptist? Here it is. It's right out of Romans 8. That's a good definition of what the Bible says, but but I think it's also helpful for us to see a few other places in the New Testament where this is mentioned. Acts 13, 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. As Paul and Barnabas were preaching the gospel in Antioch, they were calling the Gentiles, repent, repent and believe. And as Acts tells us, almost in passing, as many as were appointed to eternal life believe. How do we know they were elect? How do we know they were chosen by God? Because they believed. Ephesians 1, 4-6, Even as He chose us in Him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Before the foundations of the world, He predestined. Of course, there's also Romans 9, but I'll leave that to Pastor John in a couple weeks. It's a much hairier uh, passage. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, in the full com- conviction. You know that the kind of men we prove to be among you for our sake. How do we know they were chosen for salvation? The text tells us. Because the gospel came to them. And they believed through the power of the Holy Spirit. And there's so much more. Many more verses that I could point to. For time's sake, leave it at that. But all this leads us to the second point I want to make from the passage this morning. The doctrine of predestination, election, hear me out, is not for debate. It's not for us to debate. Instead, it is presented to us as a means of encouragement to draw us to worship, to say, thank you, Lord. That's what it's for. So next time you start debating it and getting your blood pressure gets up, you are wrong. That's not what it's for. How does the Bible present this teaching of election? One, as a comfort. Every instance of the doctrine uh, is given to a beaten down, marginalized, persecuted church. It's given to comfort the suffering servant who's living in this depressive state of Romans chapter 7. It's also a reason to praise God. Once you realize you can't save yourself, 
That apart from a sovereign work of God, you are, you are not good enough to empower belief in your own effort. You can't just white-knuckle this thing into existence. This truth, this truth will make, you heart, make your heart sing. It will draw you to praise and worship. It's also an encouragement to evangelism, contrary to proper belief. Like Acts 13 we know that when we preach the gospel and we proclaim, we tell people to repent, believe, trust, and rest in the, in, the, in the provision of the gospel for your salvation, and people will respond. It's not up to us. I don't have to finesse it. I don't have to become this wordsmith and be perfect. Praise the Lord. The purpose of the doctrine of election is to make you, as a Christian, say, thank you, Lord. You are so kind, though I don't deserve it. Praise you, for you are great. Listen, it should draw you to worship. When you think about the, the biblical teaching of election, it is appropriate to apply it to our own lives individually. It is appropriate that each Christian ask himself or herself, why am I a Christian? What is the final reason why God decided to save me? Well, this doctrine tells us that I am a Christian simply because God in eternity past decided to put his love on me. But why does he decide to set his love on me? Not anything good in me, but simply because he decided to love me. There's no more ultimate reason than that. It humbles us before God to think in this way. It, it, makes you, it makes us realize that we have no claim to the grace of God on our own. Our salvation is totally due to grace alone from God. Our only appropriate response is to give God eternal, everlasting, joyful praise. And the reminder of this verse tells us why. In doing so, God conforms us into the image of Jesus. He makes us more like him, and he also makes us children. We are now, I don't know if you noticed this, brothers and sisters of Jesus. It says, Jesus is the firstborn among many brothers, meaning he has risen from the grave. Now God does the work of spiritually raising us from the grave and making us a part of his family, commenting, on this verse, the late Pastor Tim Keller says, we are not just legally adopted into God's family, we are also getting his family resemblance. Again, God's purpose for you is to be conformed to the image of your big brother, Jesus. These truths should make our hearts sing. If you find your blood pressure rising because of this talk, then you most certainly have misunderstood these truths. On the flip side, if you find that these truths are driving you to humility and worship, driving, you, driving and motivating you to pursue holiness and to glorify God with your lives, then you, you get it. And listen, this is something that your elders, your pastors here, uh, we are willing to walk you through. We're not saying you have to understand everything. I don't understand everything. Far from it. But we can rest in it. It's here. It's here for us. It's for our good. It's not for debate. It's for our good. 
And by the way, your pastor elders, we would love to have these conversations with you to help you better understand and connect to this doctrine. We have good books that we can recommend for you. It would be an honor to have this discussion with you. Verse 30, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Paul is telling us here that that everyone that God has predestined, everyone that he has elected, he does three more things for them. He has called them. He's justified them. And he's glorified them. If you are in Christ, then God is the one who has effectually called you. He's irresistibly drawn you to himself. He's called you to believe in Christ. Your faith is not a result of your own doing. Your faith is a gift of grace because God has called you savingly to Jesus Christ. This reminds me of what C.S. Lewis said. I don't think I put the quote up here. What he said about his own conversion. He said, he came kicking, and, uh, he said about his own conversion. He said, he came kicking and screaming. He was the most miserable convert in England, he said. He didn't want to be saved. He didn't want to bow the knee. God didn't care. He drew him sweetly to the Lord Jesus Christ. He was called. He was effectively called. He was irresistibly drawn to the Savior. Everyone who is predestined, effectually called, and drawn into saving faith, then the text says they are justified. To be justified is to be pronounced and treated by God as legally righteous and blameless because of the work of Christ in his life and death. This status is transferred to us when we believe in the gospel, when we believe in Jesus. The whole book of Romans is about this. And Paul wants the church, Rome, and subsequently us today to know that this is not just some isolated event. It is rather systematically linked to the whole plan of God's purpose and activity. Beginning in eternity past, coming into history, time, today, and ending again in eternity future. But Paul wants us to see that no one is justified unless he is foreknown, predestined, and called. Then notice what Paul does at the end of verse 30. It's a fascinating use of the verb tensing. It's something that we can't miss. Notice, he says, predestined, past tense, called, Past tense. And by the way, if you ever study Greek, this is aortist uh, verb tensing. You can't understand the language without understanding the tensing of verbs. But he says, again, predestined, past tense, called, past tense, justified, past tense, and then glorified, past tense. What? Isn't glorification in the future? Like, as in, it's not something that happens to us right now in this life, but, but the one to come? He says it as if it's already happened. 
It's so certain that you're going to share glory with God that, that he speaks of it in the past tense. The, the links in the golden chain of salvation that cannot be broken. Commenting on this amazing uh, idea, this amazing passage um, it comes from one of my absolute favorite books, Knowing God by J.I. Packer. The book changed my life. I highly recommend it. I have it over in the bookstore. This is what Packer says about this. Glorified, we note, is in the past tense. Though the event itself is still in the future. This shows that to Paul's mind, the thing that is good has already been done. Being fixed in God's decree. Paul is saying, I know sometimes in your suffering, you feel like you can barely hold on. Like you're barely going to make it. But have this assurance. What God has started in you, he is going to finish. If you show evidence of being called, justified, you're going to be glorified. And this brings us to the third final point. All Christians can rest with certainty that what God has begun, he will bring to completion. This is good news. I don't know about for you. It is for me. Because I'm, I'm a mess a lot of times. All the time. Praise the Lord, he's going to finish the work because I have a long ways to go. Nothing can thwart God's plan of conforming his chosen ones into the image of his son. When you feel like you could barely hold on to him, be assured that he's still holding on to you. God didn't choose you because of your righteousness. He chose you just because he set his love on you. And he didn't choose you because of your righteousness. He's, he's not going to drop you because of your failure to be righteous. If you are in Christ, your future glorification has been signed, sealed, delivered. You can take it to the bank. It's going to happen. If you're here today, let's say this in closing, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, like, you're sort of indifferent to the things of God. You know, not really interested in the gospel, not really interested in church. And Hear me out when I say this. These promises are not for you. They're not currently for you. However, if you repent and believe, and as we'll see in Romans 10 and coming days everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved everyone if you repent of the gospel or you repent, repent of your, your own sins believe that Jesus came and lived a perfect life in your place and he died a death in your place, that was for you. That, that cross, you, that, you're supposed to be there. That, that's for you. But Jesus stood as our substitute 
Why? Because the the Lord saw fit to crush him for you. Don't leave here today. If you don't know Jesus, I, I would love to have that conversation with you. Pastor John, Pastor Chris, any of our other elders, we would love, the person beside you would love to have that conversation with you. Do not leave here today without doing that. The Lord, the Lord's predestination of us ensures his call and justification for us. And that in in turn uh, ensures our glorification, our final glorification. We are entirely in God's hand from eternity past all the way through to eternity future. He chose to love us, to declare us righteous in in, in Christ to adopt us once enemies of God now given a seat at the table like adopted beloved sons and daughters with an inheritance that is Christ is Christ's inheritance but he's given it to us all those whom God justifies will be glorified if we are in Christ now we are in him forever this is This is good news. Church, let me hear you say amen. Amen. So hear me. Hurting. Suffering. Weary Christian. You have a great hope. And it fits in a long arc. A long arc storyline that may not resolve itself by the end of the day. It may not resolve itself tomorrow or the next day. But in time, you can take it to the bank. It will. The tension in your life will be resolved. Let's pray.